Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupana Patkiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Eva Iluz. Eva Iluz is a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Her research focuses on the sociology of capitalism, the sociology of emotions, the sociology of gender, and the sociology of culture. Her work explores several significant and thought-provoking themes such as the influence of capitalism on emotions, the commodification of romance, and the meaning of freedom, choice, and individualism in the modern world. Some of her major works are Consuming the Romantic Utopia, Love and the Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, University of California Press, 1997, Cold Intimacies, The Making of Emotional Capitalism, Polity Press, 2007, and Why Love Hurts, A Sociological Explanation, Quality Press 2012. Today, in this interview, we will be discussing her recent book, The End of Love, A Sociology of Negative Relations. The first edition was published by the Oxford University Press in 2019, whereas the latest edition has been out with the Polity Press in 2021. I'm so glad to have you here today. Welcome to this interview. Hello, Rikupana. Thank you very much for having me. Right. So uh, may I begin the conversation by asking you uh, your motivation behind writing this book, if you could talk a little bit about it for our listeners? Oh, yes. Um, Thank you. Um, You know, sometimes books have a way to impose themselves on you. Um, So I was very much... um, interested in understanding why so many people around me, as well as myself, um, um, experienced love as something very, very elusive. And I would say, in fact, um, that it is the elusiveness that of love that is the topic of this uh, book. 
So I don't know if I would say there is or was a very clear uh, motivation in the sense that it was something simply that it, it imposed itself uh, on me, both in my experience and in what I could see of others' uh, experience, um, which suggested the extraordinary, extraordinary um, volatility of relationships. And I had worked before on romantic love as a kind of solid uh, topic. And what I found uh, really interesting and perhaps challenging uh, here in this book was uh, precisely to, was to grasp and to find sociological categories around, um, you know, these things that I just mentioned, elusiveness and volatility. So, so that's one thing I think that um, happened uh, to me. I think also that um, there was another reason uh, for writing the book. You know, in parallel to my work on emotions, I have also worked on the history and sociology of psychology as a new modern cultural outlook which shapes the ways in which people understand their inferiority and understand their emotions and manage their emotions. I worked quite a lot also on um, mental, models of mental health and the ways in which these models of mental health uh, compel us to work on our emotions. So I've worked quite a bit on undermining, in a way, the psychological worldview. And I was trying to actually study a phenomenon uh, that is very much usually taken care of by psychologists, namely the fact that people have uh, difficulties holding on into relationships. I was trying to do to take that object and ask what it would be like to give it a sociological explanation and to go beyond the cliches that men are from Mars and women from Venus. So it's really an attempt, in fact, to understand. Um, the malaise of heterosexuality from the standpoint of sociology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, could you talk about one of the central concepts that you use in the book, which is unloving, and what does it mean from a sociological perspective? Oh, so um, as I just mentioned, um, I, I try to study a kind of negative phenomenon. And when I mean by negative, I mean the fact that it, it is that a social bond uh, does not come into being or the fact that a social bond uh, uh, does not last. Um, so in a way, I was made to go back to the origins of sociology. And uh, you may remember that Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology, uh, wrote um, uh, an essay that is called um, Suicide, a study on suicide. And in this essay, Durkheim really inaugurates, really starts, in fact, the discipline of sociology in 1897. And 
he starts it by um, trying to understand suicide not as a mental pathology, but as the result of uh, sociological factors. So the fact that you would be unmarried, for example, or a Protestant or a man, for him very much increased the likelihood of suicide. And so what he was made to do in that study is to um, posit that something that he called anomie, that is the collapse of norms and the collapse of social bond, very much uh, increased the likelihood of suicide. And this was before, it was about 15 years before he would write one another major, um, I would say, uh, sociological essay on uh, religious ritual. And so in with these two studies, in my opinion, you have a great deal of sociology because his analysis of religion was about uh, the strength, the fact that uh, religious bonds and religious beliefs produce a great deal of solidarity. And suicide was about what happens when these bonds of solidarity break down. And so unloving, if you want, emerges from this uh, uh, tradition and asks what is it that must happen for relationships not to form? What is the process by which relationships end or uh, end quickly, in fact, or actually never gel? Um, and and so my uh, my view on this is that it's a it's a process of um, that resembles a little bit um, like a gas. It's a gas state of relationship. It's not fluid. It's not liquid but it's a state of diffuse undoing. So unloving means um, something different from what uh, sociologists usually study, which is divorce. And it's different because divorce is a discrete, it's an institutional event. It's usually contained in the sociology of marriage and it's formal. It involves, uh, you know, often courts and institutions and lawyers and but whereas here I was interested in the cultural um, uh, and and to form a relationship and um, and I connect this to the notion of freedom one of the uh, purposes of um, this study uh, was to ask the question of whether Freedom is enough, is a strong enough moral ideal to hold relationships uh, and to guide uh, and to guide our action. And in fact, uh, this book ended up being, without me really intending to do so at the very beginning, it intended to be a study. It, it actually ended up being a study of both the effects of freedom and the institutionalization of freedom because um, the state of relationships we are living today are very much the product of uh, the sexual freedom that men and women around the world have claimed for themselves throughout the 20th century and especially after the 1960s. 
And in fact, I show that, or I try to show rather, that uh, freedom with, without equality, without gender equality, is actually uh, ends up being a trap and an empty project. Right. Uh, also, if you could talk a little bit about how unloving helps us in understanding the intersections as well as interconnections between the processes of capitalism, sexuality, gender, and technology. I know it's a broad question, so please take your time. It's a broad question. Um, you know, so sexual freedom is a project which starts, you know, already in the 19th century and which advances with unequal speed all throughout the 20th century. And I would say it's a political project and it's a moral project. And um, sexuality becomes all throughout the 20th century, but again, especially after uh, the second wave feminist movement, it becomes the site for a re-articulation of women's status in their relationship to men. And I think we are still very much engaged in this process. Um, but um, so, so on the one hand, you remove uh, religious authority, you remove the uh, religious imposition that described uh, women's virtue as virginity. You remove all those um, uh, stories that made um, sexuality a sin. Of course, I, you know, I'm I am aware that I'm giving a very uh, um, very simple, uh, very simplistic view of it, but this was uh, still, I think, one um, uh, dominant perspective. Uh, Freudianism and psychiatry and so sexology, all of these very much contribute to actually um, uh, remove sexuality from the realm of religion and um, to not only that, but also to make it then a site for the formation of identity, for the the site for the experience of pleasure, the site for the affirmation of women's equality and freedom. But at the same time, um, capitalism, consumer capitalism, which actually gets developed very much throughout the same period, seizes on uh, on the body and and transformed it very much into sexualized body. Um, and that is a very uh, 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 key component, I think, of the sexual of sexual freedom. Sexual freedom went hand in hand, actually, with the sexualization and commodification of the sexualized body. That is. The sexualized body was sexualized only to the extent that it was also commodified. For example, simply showing us sex scenes or beautiful sexy bodies on movies increased their um, commercial value. That's just an example. <clears throat> Advertising did the same. So, um, <clears throat> so that's um, um, one process by which if you want sexuality become disentangled from the moral economy in which it was very much entangled previously. 
sexuality becomes a kind of autonomous sphere of action. And in becoming a, an autonomous sphere of action, it justifies very much that men and women, or uh, men and men, women and women, meet each other purely on sexual terms. And um, meeting on purely sexual terms then um, has very much uh, consequences, in my opinion, on heterosexuality, because men now have full access to actually um, all the bodies of women without being really uh, punished or uh, uh, infringing upon accepted norms. Uh, but in the sexual encounter between men and women happens quite often on very asymmetrical or very unequal terms. And this inequality between uh, that, that um, gets deployed within um, uh, autonomous sexuality is one of the topics of the book. And I would add that this um, process became accentuated with the emergence of uh, internet dating sites, um, which contributed to further autonomize uh, the sexual encounter. So where you know you, you, we moved from the casual uh, casual sex to even um, very, very short hookups. Um, and so it is the effect of these encounters, the different effect of these types of forms of encounters on men and women and on the ways in which each other approach each other, each approach each other, and the ways in which uh, they transform um, the formation of social bonds, that is in fact one of the topics of the book. So really we see I mean, the book is really about how consumer capitalism and technology uh, uh, transforms very much sexuality uh, from within and creates new forms of inequalities that I dub uh, emotional inequalities, uh, especially with the emergence of sexual markets. Uh, and in sexual markets, the two sides that meet are often meet uh, in on unequal terms. It's I hope I answered you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah. And since you have brought it up, you know, so I have to ask you uh, if you could talk a little more about how our romantic and intimate lives have been transformed by this dual, you know, processes of capitalism and modernity. Oh, you know, the, the connection is um, very broad. You know, capitalism, consumer capitalism really is the water, is the ocean in which we swim. And so in many ways, we don't even notice it anymore. So, you know, one way that uh, we I can bring up is the 
shift from uh, calling to dating. Calling was the middle class standard way of courting a woman. It was done often in the home of the woman. It, you follow the protocol. Um, it was not necessarily chaperoned, but it was under the close scrutiny of kin, uh, and neighbors and friends. Dating, which appears and became standardized, I mean, a standard practice in around the 1930s, um, meant something quite different. It meant meeting uh, in the leisure sphere, uh, far away from uh, parents, and it meant consuming together a leisure commodity. And so... Um, you know, historians have paid attention mostly to the transformation um, of uh, the mode of social control. But no less present in this transformation is the background presence of a leisure commodity. These young people are going out now to consume together a restaurant, a dance, uh, a ride in a car, an ice cream in an ice cream parlor, etc. And so that's one way in which we can first examine the, uh, the impact of capitalism on romantic life. It transforms dramatically the ways in which uh, courtship happens. And for example, making uh, a marriage n n no longer the goal of courting, uh, courtship, in fact, Courting, uh, when it becomes dating, becomes a series of uh, encounters that are that are supposed to be pleasurable, that happen in the leisure sphere, and that may or may not end up uh, in marriage. Um, then you know we can think of um, you know internet dating sites, internet dating sites introduce a market logic in relationships. Um, they, uh, for example, array the people that are available to you as if they were on a supermarket. So the logic of choice, which is a consumer logic, becomes very present with all the pitfalls of choice, of consumer choice uh, as well. Um, it encourages a, a, a sort of commodification of uh, yourself and others by attributing, uh, you know, in values by reifying others. Um, that would be a second way in which we can find a connection. We can find also a connection um, in the conflict that can exist between the personality structure that is required for the workplace and the personality structure that is required for durable, uh, uh, let's say, durable, loyal uh, relationships. The workplace often demands autonomy, um, self-reliance, affirmation of the, of the self, um, etc., Whereas relationships demand quite often of two people a tendency to symbiosis, to dependence, and to self-sacrifice. So in that way, we can say that um, 
consumer capitalism very much encourages uh, a form of short-lived um, and highly commodified uh, form of interaction. And um, the capitalism that is at work in the workplace is no less, I mean, in a way, no less undermines the personality structure required for durable long-term relationships. Whether those long-term durable relationships are preferable to the short-term ones is up for grabs. It is up for discussion. This is not a side right now I am taking, but I'm simply observing that the new grammar, if you want, of relationships has been very much impacted by capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, also, you do talk about, you know, heterosexual relations and how they become commercialized also in the context of choice and sexual freedom, which capitalism offers. Would it be possible to talk about this aspect with a few examples as well? Um, to talk about commerci com commercialized um, relationships in the context of choice? Yes, choice and sexual freedom. Um, yes. Um, so I would say, for example, that, um, well, think of the venues uh, where you meet people. Mm -hmm. uh, these venues are entirely commercial. Uh, they used to be um, bars or restaurants or movies. Uh, they are now more likely to be uh, internet dating sites. Uh, some of these sites seem to be for free, but in fact, uh, they uh, um, these are sites which, uh, you know, function under the principle of easy jet. That is, they commodify very various different aspects of the interaction. So uh, say, uh, take Tinder. Uh, Tinder will sell you the possibility of uh, looking at the messages of those, looking, seeing who likes you. Uh, it, will, it will sell you other features uh, as well. It will sell. It will divide each aspect of the interaction uh, into so many features that are uh, commercialized. Um, so, uh, so you know, first example are the venues in which uh, you meet. Uh, second is um, it would be hardly an exaggeration to say how much sexiness that is being sexually attractive has become a very fundamental attribute of personhood, of contemporary personhood. Sexiness is actually obtained through uh, the purchase of a vast quantity of consumer goods, which goes from, you know, clothes, cosmetics, uh, perfumes, to uh, removing hair from your uh, uh, legs, to uh, hairdressers, to having, uh, to uh, purchasing Botox, cosmetic uh, surgery, and so on and so forth. If you took out sexuality or sexual attractiveness somehow from our vocabulary, from our cultural vocabulary, you know, I would, I would bet that a good part of the economy would simply collapse. So central is this 
uh, uh, cultural notion to uh, the economy. Um, then I would give maybe another example, uh, which is that um, gender, men and women encounter, meet each other, sorry, men and women still very much meet each other um, in social occasions in which money is at stake. And the question of who pays remain quite important into the ways in which relationships start. I don't know if you've seen the last movie by Oslo, who was the latest can winner. It's called uh, Triangle of Sadness. And the movie opens up with a sequence. It's a very long and very powerful sequence of a couple, a young couple, who is having an enormous fight over uh, the fact that this is their second date and the woman uh, is not paying. She's uh, The man feels that she's maneuvering him in order for him to pay and she took him into this luxury restaurant. Um, and him not being very rich, he very much resents it. So this I think um, very much shows the ways in which um, these romantic negotiations, these romantic interactions contain also an implicit negotiation about money uh, that is spent in the leisure uh, sphere. Um, and then I would say also think of the fact now that many commodities advertise themselves and sell themselves as romantic commodities. This is something really new. I mean, you know, there are a lot of vacation spots or restaurants or hotels that will uh, advertise themselves as romantic getaways or as having a uniquely romantic atmosphere, which means really that some properties of uh, romantic interaction come to uh, redefine commodities and redefine their nature. So what you're going to do when you consume these commodities is not only consume a vacation proper, but consume certain specific meanings about romanticism. I hope I answered you. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes so much sense. Uh, and a lot is also said about dating today, dating apps, uh, you did talk about gender very briefly. So what would be the position of women in such a commercialized framework in which love and intimate relations themselves are, you know, commercialized? So, you know, women play a disproportionate role, actually, in consumer um, culture. I mean, men buy the heavy goods like houses and cars, uh, but a lot of the small commodities of consumer culture are bought by women. So first I would say uh, that in general, uh, women play a very active part in consumer culture. But then I would say that given uh, that women uh, have become uh, heavily objectified through their sexuality, and given that sexuality has become mostly a question of adequate consumption, of consuming the right attires, 
and makeup and diets and surgeries and so on and so forth. I would say that in fact women have are the main, probably the main conveyor belt of this commercialized uh, hyphen romantic network. That's how I would answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so last question. I want to know, since this is also a niche area of work, do you think that there is further scope for other researchers to work on this area? Certainly. I mean, I hope uh, um, very much that people argue with my uh, theories. Um, you know, this conjunction, the intersection between consumer culture and emotions especially with romantic love and sexuality, is, I think, crucial to understand modern subjectivity. And so I cannot imagine that there wouldn't be a lot of work to do uh, in this area. Um, yes. All right. <laughs> so I, would, I would definitely encourage uh, researchers. In, in particular, I mean, I would be very interested um, in the comparative analysis of these issues of running, uh, for example, an analysis by um, uh, analyzing the how consumer culture impacts a different romantic practice, different national romantic practices, you know, Israeli, French, or Indian, or American. I think that would be a line of research that would be very uh, important. Um, the second would have to do, I think, with uh, gender and feminism. Uh, it would be to figure out um, whether, as I argue, uh, women are um, have not been the winners to a certain extent of the sexual revolution. So I would be very happy if some people uh, argued with me on that score. Another area of study that I would find very interesting would be the, a comparative analysis of heterosexuality and homosexuality and how modes of approach, modes of encounter, of uh, processes of unloving, as I put it, and how freedom is experienced in these different groups. I mean, one of my arguments in the book is that, for example, uh, freedom does not feel as alienating uh, to homosexuals uh, because these couples are a priori more equal uh, and that heterosexuality has uh, built-in inequality, if you want, uh, that makes freedom more difficult uh, to produce the kind of uh, pleasure and liberation it was supposed to produce. All right. Actually, the idea of comparing national uh, ways and variations in love sounds very interesting. And I hope someone actually takes it up. Thank you so much, Professor Iluz, for giving me your time and, you know, talking to us about your very interesting book. I hope more listeners, after listening to this conversation, actually go up, uh, go out and pick up your book. So thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you very much.